chapter 2, verses 38 through 47. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Uh, good morning, King's Cross. Good morning. We're right now, like typically what we do is uh, we typically go through books of the Bible, a uh, passage at a time, and then we, we, what we do is um, sort of walk through passages of Scripture and expound on, on what they say. Um, but we've been taking a break in between series to sort of, you know, hang like our proverbial hats on a few important topics uh, to like foundational topics to, to what it means to be a healthy church. So uh, like a couple of weeks ago, we talked about gospel-shaped community, right? Uh, and last week, we talked about how Jesus transforms us through the gospel, how he satisfies the deepest longings of our souls. Uh, and this morning, we've got kind of one last standalone sermon before we launch a new series next week. Uh, and uh, for this standalone series, like as, 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 as many of you know, like we're a young church plant, right? We're a young, budding, new church plant. And so this fundamental question I want us to ask this morning is basically, what is a church? What is a church? What does a church do when they're together? Specifically, I'd like us to unpack what should a church devote herself to? What should a church devote herself to? What are the marks of a devoted church? A church that's devoted to Jesus, to each other, to Jesus' mission. And so where do we want to go if we want to learn that? If we want to learn what does a church do, what does a devoted church look like? The best place is to look at the early churches, right? The first churches. Um, I have a mentor. Many of you guys know him. His name's uh, Bill Acton. He's a 96-year-old he's pastor, uh, and so he's old, right? Like Many of you are like, that's old, and you're right. Um, he's blind as a bat, but like sharp as a tack, right? And one of the things that I'm always doing when I'm hanging out with Bill is I sit down and I just pepper him with questions. I ask him questions because I'm just hungry to learn from him. I'm hungry to learn from him, from his life experiences, his life lessons, to see things from his vantage point. Like He's been a pastor for over 60 years. He's planted a handful of churches. He's co-pastored a handful of others. And so with, when I'm with him, I'm, I want to learn. 
I'm asking, what was it like in the early days of the church? And I'm just kidding. What was it like in the early days of church planting, right? Like, what was it like in the early days of church planting? What, in your experience, are the basic kind of foundations of church planting, disciple-making, evangelizing, the types of lessons that sort of transcend the decades, right? Like, those are the things I'm eager to learn from him. And my time... My times with him are always so instructive and so helpful. Why? Because he's been down this road before, right? He's been down this road before time and time again. And so to answer this sort of big question, what are the marks of a devoted church? One of the most instructive and helpful places for us to go is in the book of Acts, right? The book of Acts, the beginning of the book of Acts, because the early church has been down this road before, right? The early church knows a thing or two about what it means to be the church. They've lived it out. They're much closer to the source material, right? And so Acts, the book of Acts, is the story of how the church got started, That's what the entire book is about. It's about how the church got started, how it grew, how it spread, how disciples were made, and how churches were planted. And so we're going to walk through and sort of unpack one of the most thrilling passages of Scripture we read this morning in Acts chapter 2. And so for context, what we need to understand is that when this happened, when, when Acts 2 verses 38 through 47 happened, this was like right on the cusp after Jesus' death. Jesus had just died for sin. He just rose for sinners. He just recently ascended into heaven, and he drops the presence and the power of God, sending the person of the Holy Spirit onto them, into them. And when the Holy Spirit shows up, the church is born into being. People are born again. They become together the people of God, this new, great, wonderful covenant community. It's this high-powered scene, kind of like the birth of a baby, right? There's a lot of commotion, there's a lot of yelling, and then everyone's excited, and then boom, the church is born. 3,000 people are saved, born again. They repent, they're baptized, and they become the church. And at the end now of Acts chapter 2, things now, after all that commotion, after all that, 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 that excitement, things kind of start to settle down. They start to slow down. And, and it's at that moment that we're going to unpack, like, what is a church, after all that excitement, the things that they're going to devote themselves to now for years and decades and generations to come. Now, after the birth of the church, what are the things that they're going to devote themselves to? That's what we're unpacking. And what we see is that the church is not a building, it's not a a place, but a people. It's a family, a family of those who've been adopted by God through through faith. And so this this is Jesus's church. It belongs to him. Not you, not me, not us. It belongs to him. And so we want to hear from him, don't we? We want to hear from him, from his word, and discover from his word how the first church functioned. And we'll see then a model for how we should function now as a new church plant here in the 21st century. We're not trying to reinvent the wheel, right? We're we're kind of getting caught up into what God has been doing for the last few thousand years. And so read now, beginning with me at verse 41. The end of, in verse 41, it says that those who received his word, it's talking about Peter here. Peter just preached the gospel to these people. 
And so it says, those who received that sermon, received his, Peter's word, were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Verse 42, and they devoted themselves. They devoted themselves. And what we're going to do now is unpack the things that they devoted themselves to. And we're going to look at four marks of a devoted church. Here's the first mark. The, the, the early church was devoted to learning. They were devoted to learning. Verse 42 says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And so first what we see is that they were devoted, they were relentlessly committed to the knowledge of God through the word of God. Right? The apostles' teaching. That's what he says. Now, these, these apostles that he's speaking of here are those who followed Jesus during his ministry. These are the guys who left their homes, left their jobs, left their families to follow Jesus day after day after day for, for three years. Right? That's how long the ministry of Jesus was when he went around proclaiming the gospel for three years. And so these apostles, the group of of about 12 men who watched Jesus handle all things with the most profound authority, with the most profound authority from the way that he talked to turning water into wine, to feeding thousands, healing the sick, raising the dead. He did all these things to prove his authority, to prove that he indeed was the Messiah of God. That he was the redeemer of God's people, the one who was sent to make all things new, to fix what was broken in us and in the world. That's why Jesus did all these things, to to show his authority that he was this, this, this savior that was sent to save. And the apostles were those that were chosen by Jesus to follow him during that time. To follow him, they were given unique authority then to represent him to the early churches and to take his truth out. That's who the apostles were. And so notice in verse 42, it says that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, to the apostles' teaching. See, they had respect for the apostles for sure, but like they weren't ultimately devoted to the apostles, but to their teaching, right? They weren't ultimately devoted to the apostles, but to the teachings that they taught. You see, we should show up like each week on Sundays on the Lord's Day with this burning desire, this hunger for the word of God. That's why we show up. It's to, to, because we hunger for, we desire, we have this burning desire for the word of God. That's what we should come hungry for each week. You see, what God has to say to us should always be more valuable, more valuable to us than the person who says it, always. So we, we hunger, we desire not to hear a particular like speaker or, or preacher or someone's like wit or wisdom, like we come to hear the word because we're hungry for it, just like these guys were. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. You see, that word devoted, like true devotion, isn't like this, this, hey, when I feel like it, devotion. It's not when it's convenient for me, devotion, right? Like studies show that, that like this generation, like my generation is the most like commitment-averse generation, right? We're the fear of missing, missing out generation, the FOMO generation. We commit to nothing so we can have a little bit of everything, Right? 
But the early church wasn't like that when it came to spiritual matters. When it came to Jesus and his word and his community, we're told they were devoted. They were devoted. You see, when, when, when you open this book, when you, when you read these, these pages, when you open up the scriptures, like a question to ask ourselves is like, are, are, are these words... Are these words more precious to you than gold? This is what scriptures say, that these words should be more precious to us than gold. Are they more treasured by you than silver? Are they sweeter than honey? Do you value these words more than you do your status at work or in the church or in ministry? More than your performance at home? more than the car you have in your garage, more than the number of likes you have on Instagram or Facebook, right? Like, is this something you treasure, that you hunger for? Or do you look at this book and do you see, like, this is just a religious chore, right? Is that the posture you have? Or are you hungry for it? J.C. Ryle, this old Anglican bishop, says, nothing so hardens the heart of man as a barren familiarity with sacred things. Boom, right? Nothing so hardens the heart of man as a barren familiarity with sacred things. You see, have you gotten so familiar with the chore of reading Scripture that you no longer have a taste for it? Do you have a taste for the things of God, a devotion to His words? Let's be a church like this church that's devoted to that, right? That's, let's be a church who treasures God's word. Consider the man Job, right? How many of you guys are familiar with the story of Job? This man who suffered and lost everything, his family, his wealth, his health. And in the middle of intense suffering, Job has the audacity to say, even in the midst of this, I have not departed from the commandment from the word of God's lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion of food. Why would he say that? Why would he, he talk about the word in this? Why, well, how could he be so devoted to the word? It's because he knows that the Bible exists for one ultimate purpose, and that's to, for us to know God. It's the primary means that God has chosen to reveal himself to us, right? We don't read these pages arbitrarily like God gave us this tool. He gave us this gift for us to know him by. It's the very foundation for the Christian community, right? The very foundation of the church. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 2.20 that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, In other words, it's built on the New Testament and also the Old Testament. Paul says that that, this word, is the only true and solid foundation that the church has. You see, you can't shift in your foundation. You can't change your foundation. We we ran into, uh, Alyssa and I ran into an old friend at Lowe's the other day. And she was, uh, she was getting paint to cover all these cracks that were showing up in, in her house up on the hill in Robinson Ranch. Uh, and she said that she has all these new cracks that weren't there before because the foundation had, had shifted, right? Like if your foundation shifts, then your house is going to have cracks. 
And here we see that, that, that Paul, that the writers, that, that um, they're saying here in the book of Acts, that Luke is saying too, like you can't shift in your foundation. Our foundation is the word of God. And so the scriptures serve us to ground us in God's word, to ground us in God's grace so that we can find rest for our souls, to expose us to truth that leads to worship, not to mention, not to, not to make us like, like we, God doesn't give us his words to, to make us rich, but to find true wealth in knowing who he is. In knowing who he is, it's so that, that you, a creature, will grow in your knowledge of who your creator is. This is why they hold on to this devotion to the word of God. So they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The second thing they devoted themselves to was they devoted to fellowship. They devoted to fellowship. Read uh, as verse 42 continues on. It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. See, true Christian fellowship and community is based on this common faith that we have, this common identity that we have in Jesus. You see, when this revival broke out in the early church, when this revival broke out, all kinds of people from different backgrounds, from different social statuses, from different ethnic backgrounds, they were getting saved. Yet, as new followers of Jesus, they sort of naturally gravitate towards each other, right? They repented, they believed, and so they're closer to God and to his people. Look, in this room alone, in this room alone, we have people of all kinds of stripes, right? All kinds of stripes. We've got old, young, single, married, people with kids, with no kids, students, white collar, blue collar, retired. The Church of Jesus represents different ethnicities, different personalities, different tastes in music, different political parties, different religious upbringings. And we have different skills, different gifts for serving that we bring to the table. See, we're all distinct from one another for sure, right? We're all distinct from one another. But if you're a follower of Jesus, then we also have this unbreakable bond this unbreakable unity that comes with being part of the same family, with being brothers and sisters in God's family. You see, that's what fellowship is. They devoted themselves to that because it was so wrapped up in who they are. It was their identity. Verse 44 says, All who believed were together and had all things in common. You see, our individualistic culture is kind of at odds with this, right? Like, our individualistic culture is at odds with this. Like, we believe in sort of the sovereign self, right? Especially in the Western world, we're all about the sovereign self. We think about the person over the people, about ourselves over the group, right? Like, this is the generation that had the word selfie added to the dictionary. (laughs) But you can't do Christianity alone. You can't do Christianity alone. Like, even, even if some church people, like, just annoy the heck out of you, like, you, you, can't, you can't do it alone. It's like, like, you can't say, hey, I'm, I'm cool with God, but, like, I don't want to hang with his people, right? Like, it's a family package. Let's say, like, just, like, let's say, like, I adopted you into, into my family, right? Um, some of you would be like, that's really weird, Right? Uh, my family right here is like, that, that's weird, right? So, but let's just say you're not part of my family, right? 
You're looking for a home. You're a homeless. You're without a family. I adopted you into my family. And so you have your stuff. You knock on our, on our home, on our front door. I'm, you're, you're so excited to be part of the family. You knock on my door. You've got your bags in your hand. I open the door, and you're, you're like, hey, thank you so much for inviting me to be part of your family. I'm so excited. Uh, you know what? Like I, but one thing is I, like, I love hanging out with you, but I don't want to hang out with your wife, right? I don't want to play with your kids. I don't want to hang with them either. I'll be like, hey, no worries, honey. You like pack your bag. I'm just kidding. Like, no, I tell this guy to get lost, right? I tell you to, to get lost. Like one of the ways that the fellowship is fleshed out for, for this church is, is through the ways that they regularly gathered with each other because they knew they belonged together, right? Like through regular gatherings with God's people. We see in verse 46, it says, day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. You see, the early church had regular gatherings, regular rhythms, gatherings, large ones in the temple and small ones in their homes. God's people throughout church history has generally met on Sundays, right? So that's why we call Sunday the Lord's Day. It's because it's the day Jesus rose from the dead. So even the act of gathering on Sundays, what we're doing right now, even the, act that, uh, even the fact that we're gathering on Sunday is this, is this public statement that we associate with the risen Jesus. It's always been that way. That's our large gathering, what we're doing right now. Even though we're like a young, small church family, like this is sort of our larger gathering. But the early church also had small gatherings, right? We, they met in homes, and we have those too, right? That's when we like go to lunch together after church. That's when we have community dinners, which we're going to do again soon, eating in our homes, people opening up their homes, being hospitable, inviting others into fellowship in their homes. Having casual hangouts, right? And, and soon we're going to be launching community groups, just regular rhythms of meeting in the middle of the week. We're going to have sign-ups for that after the service today. And sort of like a little side note is one popular line of thinking, like in, in sort of the, the church today, like one popular line of thinking right now is that, um, like you'll hear people saying today, look, the church didn't really have large meetings. They only had small ones, right? Like this verse says they met in homes. Like they'll use this verse to say, see, they only met in homes. Like, like what we're doing today, that's like modern Western, like the, 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 the true church, the authentic church. They didn't have large meetings. They only had small ones in homes. But that's not even what this passage says, right? It says they attended the temple together. Elsewhere in the New Testament, it talks about they met in courts, in large places. At one point, Paul runs out this large hall in Ephesus, this banquet hall for the church to gather, right? And so we have small gatherings, but we also have large gatherings. You need both. You need both to happen. And the common thread and the big takeaway from this verse is this, is that God's people should have regular rhythms in their lives of gathering together. On Sundays, like we're doing right now, and also like in, 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 in our homes and, and, and inviting each other out for meals and, 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 and things like that. You see, every follower of Jesus, every follower of Jesus has a personal relationship with God, for sure, but that relationship is not isolated. It's a personal relationship, but it's not a personal relationship that's, that's isolated. You see, the Christian faith is not intended to be lived in private. Fellowship is not optional for us. 
Christianity isn't about just about you and, and, and Jesus. It's about you and Jesus and other believers. It's about you and Jesus and God's family. Like you can't be the church by yourself, right? We were made for community. We were made for fellowship. And the cross of Jesus restores us to that. It reconciles us to God and to each other. And it causes us to be family with people who are much different than us. Church is more than just some place that we attend. It's a people that we belong to. It's a fellowship where Jesus is our center and his message is the very foundation on which we stand. It involves mutual love, care, intentionality, accountability, authenticity. Like that's the kind of fellowship that we, that we long for. That's what the early church devoted themselves to. Here's the third thing they devoted themselves to. Uh, in, in verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread. Now, when you see the breaking of bread, the breaking of bread, what he's talking about here is communion, right? You'll see in other, other areas of, of, of Scripture, it talks about breaking bread, being hospitable to one another, sharing meals together. But when you see the breaking of bread, the breaking of bread, what he's talking about is partaking in communion, which might seem strange to you, right? Like, was this communion ritual really that important to the early church, right? Was it really that important? We see here that it was. In fact, it was central to the Christian gathering. Communion has, has two elements, bread and wine, right? Right now, we use this cracker and juice to signify the bread and wine. And what communion is... The Lord's Supper, what it is, is it's acknowledging the cross of our Lord Jesus. That's what communion is. And so to say that the early church devoted themselves to the breaking of bread is another way of saying that they devoted themselves to the gathered celebration of the gospel. Right? Has to do with worshiping together. We do this, we take communion as an echo of one of the most sobering nights in human history. When Jesus had his last supper with his disciples, the scriptures tell us that on that night, he took a loaf of bread, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is given for you. It's broken for you. And he took the wine and he said, this is my blood that was shed, it was spilt for you. And so when we take part in communion, we as Christians are taking part in, in a family meal, a family meal that remembers, points back to Jesus' last supper, where we're, we're remembering that the bread is about his broken body and that the drink is about his shed blood, and we're reminding ourselves of the sacrifice of our Savior. That's what we're doing when we take communion. It's a public reminder and really a proclamation of the gospel that saves that becomes more clear in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 26, where it says, For as often as you, this is Jesus speaking, he says, As often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Sorry, that's Paul. As often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so we're proclaiming the gospel as a church. You see? Like, some of us think, like, proclaiming the gospel, like, that's this guy's job, right? This is the guy up behind the pulpit with the Bible in front of him. 
But no, like it says that when we gather together as a church community, we proclaim the gospel to each other when we take communion together. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Um, in the Lord of the Rings, um, how many of you have heard of that book, right? The Lord of the Rings, there's this character named Pippin, right? He's a hobbit. And there's this point in, um, in like, the, in like the book version of the movie, wait, so that doesn't make any sense, the book version of the movie. Uh, in the book version, there's this point um, where the character of this hobbit Pippin, he's, he's trapped in the city, right? He's trapped in the city that's getting completely obliterated, ultimately destroyed by this nasty hordes, these armies that are coming in. Right, And at the last minute, he's like fearing for his life. He's, he's taking cover. He's trying to hide himself. These armies are coming in. People are getting slaughtered like left and right. And he's completely terrified of losing his life. And at the last minute, as the hordes are closing in to the areas that he's hiding, like he hears this loud horn in the distance. He hears this loud horn in the distance. And it turns out that that horn is the good guys, right? Like the horn marks the moment that these good guys, these knights, just pile into the city up against these hordes, these armies, and they come to the rescue. And tons of these knights end up dying, losing their lives, but they still save the people in the city, including Pippin. And in the book, it says that for the rest of, of this guy's little like hobbit life, for the rest of his hobbit life, every time Pippin heard a horn in the distance, he would just break down into tears. He would break down into tears because the horn for him, the sound of a horn, was this tangible reminder to him of his salvation. He relives the day he got saved every time he hears the sound of a horn. He remembers every single time. He's reminded of the past of, and the sacrifice of the knights who died, who lost their lives to save him. He could be having like the worst week of his life, but when the, he hears a horn blow, he's just overcome with a sense of peace. Why? Because that sound reminds him that every moment of his life is a gift. It reminds him that all that he knows is grace. In the same way, in the same way, the Lord's Supper, the communion that we take, is a distant horn that connects our salvation and the one who sacrificed himself, who lived, bled, and died to save you. And it will transform if we have that perspective. Every single week as we gather to hear the word, as we gather to hear the gospel proclaimed, as we proclaim it to each other when we take communion, it will transform every God-given minute of your life because you'll, you'll know, you'll be reminded that every moment is infused with the grace of Jesus. You see, at King's Cross, that's why we take communion each week after the sermon. And when we do, it's an opportunity for us as Christians to bring our sins before Jesus and remember that he paid the penalty for our sin. For those that are, of us that are Christians, it's, time to get, it's a time for us to, to get right with God through repentance and through reflecting on the gospel, through proclaiming it to one another. And, and it's, it's, it's gruesome. It's a thing to remember, like his blood, body broken, his blood spilt. It's a gruesome thing to think about, but it's still good news, Right? It's the center, the central part of the Christian message. 
It's also an opportunity for those of us who are not Christians to become one, to admit that you are more broken and stained than you ever previously knew, but that you also get to be forgiven, loved, and accepted and transformed in Jesus. We proclaim the gospel to one another when we take communion each week. And so they devoted themselves, the early church devoted themselves to taking communion. Number four, they devoted themselves to prayer. They devoted themselves to prayer. Acts 2.42 says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. You see, prayer wasn't just something that happened on the outskirts of their gatherings. Right? It wasn't just something that happened outside of their gatherings. It wasn't just something they did privately at home or at their breakfast table or when they're by themselves, right? Like when the early church gathered, it says that they were devoted to prayer. And here's an interesting Bible exercise for you. Like when you actually scan the New Testament, when you scan the New Testament, you'll actually see that there are more mentions of corporate gathered prayer than there is for private prayer. Normally when we read passages about prayer, we kind of apply that to our own personal prayer lives. But like within its context, most of the time that prayer is mentioned in the New Testament, it has to do with the church. It has to do with gathered prayer. Throughout the rest of the book of Acts and in the epistles of Paul's, whenever a church was encouraged or commanded to pray, they were usually commanded to pray together as a church, not as individuals. And see, we're such, again, like a self-focused individualistic culture that we tend to impose this sort of like solo mentality when we read these passages on prayer. But when we do that, we sort of undermine, we undermine the community experience of prayer that God desires for us that the early church devoted themselves to. Spurgeon says, The true prayer is neither a mere mental exercise nor a vocal performance. It is a spiritual commerce with the creator of heaven and earth. See, when we pray as a church, we are engaging in a collective conversation with our creator, with our God, with our Savior. That is why gathering to pray is one of the most God-centered things that a church can do. Whenever we pray together, we, 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 um, we express our utter dependence on Him. We get to enjoy intimacy together with our Creator. It's about basking in who God is. It's actively expressing our dependence on Him. That we're so dependent on him. It's declaring that our will is subject to his. That our power has its limits and his doesn't. That his kingdom will come and is without boundaries. That his will will be done perfectly on earth as it is in heaven. And so when we think about this, like, do, you, do we know, like, as individuals, do, we, do you know what's going on at, in, in our church family? Do you know what's going on at the church, and do you pray for those things? Do you gather with others, and do you pray for our needs? Pray for our leaders, for our servants, for our members. Do you pray for their needs? Let's pray for the glory of the gospel to be displayed in our unity and prayer. Let's pray for missional opportunities to serve and declare Jesus to our neighbors. We need to be devoted to praying together to come to Jesus, to pray to him, to receive his grace, and to join each other in true unity and humble prayer so that with God's power and by his grace, we can be used by him to add to his family, to add to our number, to add to his family. 
And as we wrap up, I want, I want us to look at one thing that kind of holds this together. The one thing that, that holds all this together as they were devoted to, to, to learning, to fellowship, to communion and prayer. The one thing that holds all this together is this, this sort of spirit-transformed life of devotion. It says that they were devoted, devoted to Jesus, his word, and his people. Verse 42 says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And verse, verse 46, it says, day by day they met in, in, the, in the temples. Now, now in, in English, we don't realize that like in, in the Greek, the same idea is going on in both of those verses. This idea of devotion of regular rhythms, of devoting themselves. When you see day by day in verse 46, and when you see they devoted themselves in verse 42, it's the same uh, idea. And that's the linchpin that holds this whole passage together. You see, what I want you to notice is that the early church was devoted to these things. That word is both intense, it's meant to be intense, and it's intentional. Do you guys know what it means to be devoted? Like when, when my, my wife is a devoted wife and mother. And when I say those words, when I say that she's a devoted wife and mother because she is, when I, when I use those words, you kind of get a picture of what kind of woman she is, right? You get this snapshot, this picture of, 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 of her character and who she is as a woman. It tells you that not only is she a faithful wife and mother, but it tells you that she sort of orients herself, her love, her loyalty to, to serving her family. And in the same way, when we see that the early church was marked by devotion, we're saying that they spent their lives, they gave their love for Jesus' sake and for each other. They did so in response to what Jesus had done for them. They had just repented, believed, 3,000 of them get saved, and now they devote themselves together to something, right? They devote themselves to these things. It literally means they set themselves apart. They set themselves aside for these things. You see, they didn't just do church. They didn't just do church. They didn't just treat learning, fellowship, communion, and prayer as sort of like this religious checklist. that they, It says that they were devoted to these things. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to communion. They were devoted to prayer. They didn't just meet in temple courts. They were devoted to those gatherings. They were so devoted to fellowship that when there were needs among them, they sold their own stuff so that they could take care of each other. You see, we should take stock of how we spend our time, our talents, our treasure, consider the things that we dream about, the things that we long for, that we work for, and see, when we take stock of that, that will tell us deep down inside what we are truly devoted to. And when we see at the end of Acts chapter 2 is that the things that they devoted to when they gathered as a church together was a word, a fellowship, communion, proclaiming the gospel to one another, and prayer. This life of devotion, being a devoted community, a devoted church, that's the life that we're saved into. You see, when we repent and believe, when we begin following Jesus, our faith isn't just something that we, we tack on to our self-centered lives, right? Like, 
It's a, it's a wholesale reframing and reshaping of our lives, a reframing of all that we believe, a reorienting of all that we love, a reforming of how we, how we now live that out. It's a life of devotion where we no longer live for ourselves, but for our Lord Jesus, for his word and for his people. Amen. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church podcast. If you would like to learn more about King's Cross Church or make a donation, please visit kx.church. Here at King's Cross, we believe that worship means more than just listening to a sermon, and we encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. For Sunday morning meeting time and location for King's Cross Church, please visit kx.church. Thanks again for listening.